I'm joined by Hayden Donnell for Midweek Media Watch. Hi, Hayden. Hi there, Karen. Thanks for having me. Didn't uh, think you were going to come in tonight. I thought we were going to talk, be talking to you on the phone. No, I couldn't miss a chance to come back into the Radio New Zealand studios. <laughs> Did you put, uh, do your, what is that thing called, QR? I've forgotten what it's called. Oh, I haven't done my QR codes. I'll, I'll do a manual contact trace when I go back. Well done. All right, let's start with the New York Times. Uh, their headline, of course, is all about George Floyd. And you want to focus on the op-ed that they had. Yeah, I do. So there, we've covered this a little bit on Sunday, but there has been a revolt inside the New York Times newsroom recently. And it all started last week with a op-ed from the Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, and it was headlined, Send in the Troops. And so this was basically a call for what he called an overwhelming show of force to deter the Black Lives Matters protesters that are across the US, engulfing the US, every single city. Just about. And so that was met with an outcry from the newsroom and, and the opinion, some of the opinion section as well. And they just basically posted the same message to their Twitter accounts and it said that running this puts black NY Times staff in danger. And so this was a incredibly, I mean, there were the, it was attributed to just a young staff, but it was also, the, it was basically across the editorial section. And they were basically saying that running this piece of commentary was irresponsible and that it could inflame violence, not just against uh, protesters, but against New York Times journalists that are covering the protests. And there's been a huge fallout. We covered some of it, some of it on Sunday, but recently on Monday, James Bennett, the editor of the opinion section of the New York Times, actually resigned, and the New York Times has admitted that they have done they they were wrong to publish this column. So it's a reasonably massive upheaval, and it goes to the heart of a several, I guess, debates about how journalism and opinion sections should be run. Yes, it's not just about what was said, but uh, how opinions are put forward, and this, you know, both sides of the coin. Yeah, and so that that both sides thing that you mentioned there goes to the heart of, I think, probably the biggest debate about how journalism should be practiced in this modern age. And so recently, there's two principles, I guess, that have really animated journalism. It's this view from nowhere, it's called, which is, I guess, basically objectivity. And the other is that this idea of both sides journalism, where basically if there are two sides, there, it's this assumption that there's always two sides to every issue. There's sort of, I guess, the left-wing side and the right-wing side, you got to, or you know, the conservative side and the liberal side, you just got to put them both in, and that's all you have to do to fulfil your journalistic function. And that has been pushed back on really strongly recently by a, a, a whole heap of journalists, but particularly, I guess, and this is why it relates to the current moment, you know, uh, people of colour... Uh, black journalist like Wesley Lowry, formerly of the Washington Times. And he, his basic argument boils down to your core value needs to be the truth, not the perception of objectivity. Because this, this objective journalism, while it seems good, it can, because it doesn't pass judgment, allow bad faith actors and bad faith arguments to essentially gain the same footing as better arguments. And in a sense, that's what the journalists at the New York Times are arguing did happen here, that a bad faith argument got elevated in the name of, I guess, giving weight to another side or being objective or being perceived as objective. Isn't that what the op-ed is about, though? It's just an opinion, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing. Opinion sections are different, right, to editorial 
sections. They have they're meant to host a lively debate between different sides of the political coin, and they do have looser rules, and that's fine. But then these these people are saying that a similar argument applies. That yes, you can have different views, and you can have people that are more conservative and people that are more liberal. But you have to have the best thinkers, and you have a duty of care to your readers to actually. I guess broadcast the best arguments, but also to not broadcast bad faith arguments, and in this case, to not broadcast an argument which could be dangerous, not just to you, your readers, but to your own journalists who you have an even greater duty of care to. So not to not publish anything, just any old thing, that any opinion that anybody has... Yeah. And then do the opposite uh, viewpoint. Yeah, because that's a lazy way of doing it, right? Oh, you assemble a couple of left-wingers and a couple of right-wingers and you go, okay, we've got all those perspectives and that's fine. Actually, they're saying, look, you have a responsibility to broadcast the most eloquent, the most uh, researched, the most experienced opinions, no matter which side of the political spectrum they come from. You so so that's the argument there. In this case, they're also arguing that it's irresponsible too. Totally understand what what you're saying, and I would have thought that the New York Times would have done that anyway. So has this been a slip in their standards, or is this just something that is now infiltrated, you know, journalism? So this is. The, 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 it is a debate. I mean, I would say that the majority of the Times newsroom is, is is adhering to the argument that I just expressed there, but there are some people, like Mitchell Powell, he's a columnist, he said, you know, a strong paper and a strong democracy does not shy away from many voices. This one had clear news value. And that argument does have weight. Tom Cotton's view is of a senator. He obviously has, it obviously does have news value if he wants to send in the troops to uh, shoot his own citizens. That's newsy. They're saying that he shouldn't have been provided an unquestioned soapbox for that opinion, that it should have been included in a news story where contradictory or contradicting opinions are also aired. Who won? Uh, I'd say who won. I would say this is a victory for people who are arguing against the voice from nowhere and against both sides' journalism and for a more, I guess, a journalism that is more grounded in a particular ethical stance. And that's this is a battle that they've won, but that old um, style of journalism, that, that old, I guess, you call it faux objectivity because objectivity, this is a different debate, but yes. Uh, faux that, objectivity, like well, you're pretending to be objective yeah, to get no, your point across. No, it's, it, the, the argument there is that actually the what we call objectivity is rooted in a structural system that is sort of... Uh, very normative and, and actually reflects uh, society, which is very white and very patriarchal. Anyway, that's a different debate. But, uh, oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was way off theme there. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it's a victory for that different I, this different idea of what, how journalism can be practiced. But I think that the old guard is still there and it's mostly in charge of papers and it's in people like Peter Baker, the political reporter from the New York Times who tries to clear his mind of any sort of... Um, Factual judgments before he makes his reports. You know, there's, uh, there, no, <laughs> that's he's literally, that's that's literally what, he is said. That what he said. Yeah, no, he said I've I try to clear my mind of any judgment before factual. Writing. Yeah, just to, it's just like an empty oasis that his mind is that he, that information goes in and then it gets sort of regurgitated out onto the page, and that's a very it's it's not an uncommon view of how journalism should be practiced. Just stenography, you you put 
the facts in and you someone tells you something, you put it down, you know. And, oh, the key word being judgment there. Yes. I understand. Okay. And what about New Zealand? Let's look at, for example, the panel. That has, that's both side journalism, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, it's got the, the uh, there's a right winger and a left winger. <laughs> In some ways it is, but uh, I guess the, the question there is whether you actually book the best people. Whether you, and it's not whether you've got a right winger and a left winger. It's whether you've actually got really valuable opinions that are being broadcast. And, yeah, uh, there's a, I guess what I wanted to talk about with New Zealand is that this, this debate does come up quite a bit. I see it on social media where people will sort of talk to someone like maybe Patrick Crudson at stuff and they'll hold up a column by someone like Damien Grant and they'll say, look, why are you publishing this drivel? It's ridiculous. And Patrick Crudson will sort of say back... I run a news organisation, you may not agree with it, but my job is not to just broadcast things that you agree with. And that is an admirable and laudable sentiment. Uh, but it's a question of whether there are instances in the New Zealand media where they maybe cross the line into more irresponsible broadcasting of opinion. Have we and where? Any yeah. examples? The, the, the examples that I'm thinking about are mainly uh, News Talk ZB during the COVID-19 crisis. I'm going to go back. I'm going, this is the end. <laughs> this is the end. We're at, the, we're at level one. I'm going to go back a little bit. But I thought News Talk ZB is an opinion station. That's absolutely fine. But I thought that it was quite irresponsible with some of the stuff that it broadcast during the COVID-19 crisis because it was a time where actual really uh, detailed scientific expert information could actually save lives. And instead, uh, we had stuff like this. Now, this is Martin Devlin from March 13, and this is on whether COVID-19 is in fact a pandemic. I do understand it, but you've got to listen. It's a pandemic now. You've got to listen to those people. I don't believe it's a pandemic. A pandemic killed almost 100 million people at the end of the First World War. That's a pandemic. Because, because they let they let ships come into New Zealand. They didn't have anything like we have no, now. No, no, no. What happened, Fran, is all of our good men and women were fighting overseas in the war, and they came home like they did to every other country in the world, and they brought the flu with them. I mean, you couldn't help it, could you? When was that? It was March 13. So it was, it was mm. early on. It was early on. It was 13 or 18. I think 13. Sorry. Uh, it, he did go on. Now, this is him on whether a lockdown will work. Look, the whole country's not going to come together in a big kumbaya hug fest saying we're all on this together. It's not going to happen. So instead of just throwing this at us and saying this is the cure-all, we all know that it's not practically workable. So give us something better than that. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and humans look after themselves anyway. Don't, don't we? So well, we didn't quite come together in a hug fest, but we no. did come together. I mean, a hug fest would have really missed the point. Yes. Uh, I mean, Martin, he was quite emotional that day, and he did end up saying that, that he just really wanted his rugby back and he didn't want to miss his rugby. So he will be actually quite overjoyed, and you would understand him being overjoyed, that it is coming back. So this is Martin Devlin uh, this Saturday, just been. Pat yourselves on the back, New Zealand. It's quite amazing, isn't it? If you cast your mind back and think, wow, really? I mean, look at the rest of the world. How much live professional sport is going to be played in the rest of the world? 
at the moment. All these dates are being put in front of us. This is going to start. That's going to start. This is going to start. And then you look at the fact that most of these countries, especially Europe, America, are still at a high level of lockdown. There's going to be no international travel for who knows how long. Here in New Zealand, what, 15 days in a row it was yesterday? We've done pretty well, haven't we? Perhaps you have to be very fluid in your stance as a talkback host, Hayden. <laughs> it's been quite remarkable, though. You've had the, so that some of these news talk hosts have been incredibly fluid during. So Mike Hosking was a prime example. He began sort of saying that we'd overreacted. Then he said, "This week is all about getting New Zealand into lockdown. We have to shut down the country." Then, as soon as the country was shut down, he said it was absolutely the wrong decision to shut down the entire country. Why did we destroy our economy for this? You know, he hosted Simon Thornley of Plan B. His wife Kate Hawkes also followed a very similar trajectory. And this type of contrarian opinion making, it does make economic sense. Uh, It gets people listening. It sparks debate. It generally makes money. And that is incentivized. Absolutely. But I did think (laughs) that having someone spouting quite poorly informed, often incorrect stuff during a deadly pandemic was pretty irresponsible, and this was a situation where wrong information could literally cost lives. Uh, and we're getting people to, for instance, stick to the lockdown was really vital to public health. And so I, I, I thought that was a pretty questionable thing for, for News Talk to amplify those voices and not to really take a more careful stance with what it actually chose to broadcast there. And this goes back to something like the New York Times. and, and uh, I mean, it's a different issue. It's very different. You don't have but, a lot of time to think, though, Hayden. That's not an excuse, but you're, you're live the whole time, and it's talk, it's talk back you know, practically 24 hours a day. So, mm. uh, you know, some opinions that come out, they, they may renege on them later, as Martin Devlin did. Yeah, and obviously, uh, yeah. As humans do. As humans do, but there's actually, I guess what the only thing that I resent sometimes about it is that there's no hint of, uh, whoops, sorry, I got that wrong. It's it's amnesia every day. It's a new, it's like the minds are absolutely wiped and then they push forward with it with with a totally blank slate into the new day every day. (laughs) And and, and it's it's strange. You have to to survive. Yeah, yeah, possibly. You're speaking from experience here. I don't know. You've been reasonably I, consistent, I thought, Karen. I haven't. I'd had time. never. Yeah. Well, I made a deliberate um, effort to not spout those opinions mm. and to to listen to what people were saying to me because I think this, those shows are about listening to the nation and having a discourse about what those issues are and then finding some, you know, resolving them, discussing them, uh, rather than you having an opinion. And foisting it upon others. Well, I, I, I am foisting my opinion upon everyone right now, so I'm a bit of a hypocrite. But I, I agree, and you, you will find that there are hosts, even on News Talk ZB, that take that line. Like, I mean, Simon Barnard and Phil Gifford are, are, are a little bit more respectful than maybe someone else like uh, uh, Mike Hosking will be, even on News Talk ZB. But so the misinformation, I just wanted to highlight this. This hasn't really stopped. This is Kate Hawksby just yesterday. Every business, hospitality, outlet and building premise is to keep a QR code at the door for people to register as they come and go. That involves, of course, everyone downloading the government's app. The Prime Minister said, make of that what you will. What if you don't have a cell phone? What if you don't want to download the app? Experience would tell us the worst consequence you may encounter is a friendly warning from a 
police force who've done nothing more than issue friendly warnings throughout this whole thing. What do you reckon they talk about when they get home? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it does seem like there is some collaboration there. But now, that the the thing that she just said there about the police enforcing anything to do with the QR codes is actually incorrect. The stuff reporter Charlie Mitchell tweeted actually about this. He said that it was totally based on a wrong assumption. He said, you know, I know it's tedious at this point. But by the way, QR codes, you don't have to sign in. You, the, the, it's just like washing your hands. It's a guideline. It's to, for public health. Uh, but he said, you know, I know it's tedious at this point to complain about a certain group of columnists, but when you're a reporter trying to communicate things clearly and accurate, it becomes harder when opinion writers get to say things that are wrong with no apparent oversight. And he's right. It is tedious to criticise News.ZB, but it is a station with a huge platform, and I just thought that what it broadcasts does matter. At the start of this pandemic, NZME Chief Executive Michael Boggs said... Uh, in an email that the company would uphold the highest standards of journalism during this crisis. And I didn't really feel that those were upheld. And it could have really broadcast useful information. You saw media organisations change their practice to do that. You saw the spin-off, for instance, which is maybe more light entertainment, host a series with Susie Wiles that was so, uh, and Toby Morris, the cartoonist, it was so useful and informative and really was clear uh, fact-based science communication and it could have been a better approach to go with that. Well, it is personality-driven. Yeah. You'll notice I put those in inverted commas. Yeah, absolutely. And and many of the media's incentives, especially in the in, <laughs> before this recent funding crisis, were driven in that direction, that they had to generate listenership to generate advertising dollars. And, you know, they had to engage people. That's absolutely fine. I get that. Uh, it, it, the idea is whether the media is in fact changing to more of a subscription model, to places where driving high quality content and driving uh, subscribers, listenerships, uh, that kind of that kind of income will actually become more important. Wildly popular, though, Hayden. Um, that last survey just gone, News Talk ZB mm. uh, came out as the country's number one commercial radio station. Uh, and their cumulative audience, I believe, was uh, nearly 550,000, 536,000, something like that. So they are a well-listened-to station. Mm, absolutely. And and I guess that's why it's sometimes important to critique what they do say. As, uh, because if, if they do say something that's inaccurate or they give bad information, then it actually goes out to so many people. And... Their model might be changing just like everyone's model might be changing. Maybe quality will become more important. Uh, yeah. Very good point. That's a great point. And thank you. I'm sorry we haven't got a chance to talk about uh, the new leader of the National Party. Perhaps we can talk about that next week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We do. We wanted to talk about his new comms team, Janet Wilson and Matthew Hooton, former former commentators. So they are now on National's team and they will not be on the radio waves for much longer, for a long time, in fact. That's Hayden Donnell with Midweek Media Watch.